The opinions expressed by the guest and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Sharon Brown, and you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me, Anthony, on another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's a great day, and it is a Friday. Yes. Yes, so I'm <laughs> excited about that. So, on today's episode, we have two special guests who are joining us for more of what's going on. And as you remember, we talked in our last episode about some different generations in the workplace. And our guests today are going to elaborate on their experiences as being Cornell employees and how they work with all the generations that exist. Let's take a moment. Let's get our guests to introduce themselves and let them jump into this conversation. And um, let's see where it goes today. Hi, my name is Dane Cruz, the director of the Cornell Interactive Theater Ensemble. I use he, him, his as my pronouns, and I've been here for 24 years. Hi, everybody. My name is Clayton Covington. I work in the Brennan Center for Translational Research as a research aide for the National Data Archive on Child Abuse and Neglect, which is a mouthful. But I've been here at Cornell for three months now, and I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. Fantastic. Thank you so much for introducing yourselves. All right, so before we get started, I do have a question for all of us to answer. So this is our question of the day that we always ask every participant, every guest who comes on. And nobody knows the question of the day except for me or Sharon. Not even me. Only if I'm asking it, then I know it. But since (laughs) this is Anthony's turn to ask the question, only they know what they're going to say. And I'm braced and ready for whatever. All right. So are we ready to answer this question of the day? Oh, no. I guess so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the question of the day is, if you could witness any event of the past, present, or future, do you have one? I think I do. All right, Sharon, take it away. <laughs> I think that I would like to have witnessed Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Ooh. Yeah, that I think that actually took place the year I was born, if, I, if I'm aging myself, if it was 1968. I wasn't around, but I think that that is something that I would have wanted to witness. I did go back to Washington, D.C. for the 50th anniversary back in, um, oh, I guess it was 63 because the 50th anniversary was in 2013, and I was there. That was very exciting because I was so aware of how far we have come as people of color and in the civil rights movement and, and, you know, just getting the equal rights on so many levels that the simplest thing became a very, very big deal to me. A simple thing like taking a subway that is air conditioned to get from where we were to where we're going because we took buses and things like that. And to know that we are able to travel freely and move about the cities and states any way we want to and not having to be relegated to sitting on certain areas of the bus or in public transportation. It's a little thing, but it's an enormous thing. So I, I was very aware of that. And just being able to be all over the Washington, D.C. area and not feeling that I had to be in a particular section that was designated for brown and black people, that was amazing as well. So just the freedom to move about the country 
I know that I take that for granted. I cannot imagine what it was like for the people who were there originally. It was also good to see people of all ages and, and generations to be there at the 50th anniversary of this speech. It was wonderful. Okay, well, one thing that came to mind for me is that when I was two months old, my mom told me that my grandfather, who passed away when I was two years old, had a very long conversation with me in which he sat me down for three hours, and it was just him and me. And apparently my mom said that, like, he shared some really you know, amazing foundational advice, but of course I didn't have the consciousness to understand what was going on. So I think I'd really like to go back to that moment, like hear what that mm-hmm. conversation was, because I never really got to know my grandfather, but I do know the vast amount of impact he had in the community, because he was a preacher in this really small town of Southeast Iowa that's predominantly white, but he was like one of the only black ministers in that community who really helped to bring a lot of different people together. And so knowing the type of community impact he's had. I want to have a similar impact in whatever community that I'm in. I'm sure he shared some really wonderful and heartfelt words. Wow, that's wonderful. That is really beautiful. That is such an intimate moment where grandpa is talking to this infant and just putting all kinds of wisdom right there in front (laughs) of you. Wow, that, that, I mean, aesthetically, that must have been so beautiful to witness, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so glad that your mom told you because had she not shared that with you that it happened, you would have never known. And so, yeah, I, I want to know your grandfather, too. <laughs> kidding me? I think we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Dane, what about you? So, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by hearing each of you talk about what you would like to experience. And for me, I guess I want to leap forward to the future a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that I have the opportunity to experience a world and a United States that has harmony and that difference is embraced and respected. Right now, it feels like that's, we're so far away from that in some ways, but that's, that's what I would love to see. And I want, I want to believe in my heart that it's not so distant mm-hmm. and that I will have an opportunity to see a, a place where we can live and love and be whoever we are. Right. That's fantastic. For me, I have a, a specific event. So July 13th, 1985, London, Wembley Stadium. Right. Live Aid. Right. I would have loved to see Queen perform their set live. <laughs> Queen. <laughs> Specifically Freddie Mercury. I, I'll i never forget the first time I saw that video on YouTube of their set. I think it was only like an hour long. It wasn't even anything like super long. But it actually gave me goosebumps and I started crying because that was just the, the energy. I mean, even just with the YouTube video, it wasn't even crystal clear. It wasn't HD quality. But I could just <laughs> feel quality. the energy. Yeah, I could just feel the energy from that that crowd mm-hmm. during their set. And it's one of those things that I think is written like in history as like one of the epitome moments of like music history, right? Okay. And I'm a huge concert goer. I love going to concerts. Mm-hmm. I love seeing artists. You know, I, I for me like just that set. I mean, I watch it. and then obviously seeing Bohemian Rhapsody and and they kind of reenact that moment. Yeah, I saw the movie in theaters and once again it kind of put me in tears where I was just so moved and I just love Freddie Mercury as a as a musician, as an artist, as a person who he was. And so I just yeah, I wish I could just be in the crowd. And just mm-hmm. feel that energy. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. So that's going to bring us right into our conversation about more of what's going on. So we talked, Anthony and I, in our last episode, we talked about the four generations that exist in the workplace. And here at Cornell, we have all kinds of people at different phases and stages in their careers, in their lives, essentially. And we all have to peacefully coexist and get stuff done here at the university. 
the generations that have been labeled for better or worse, <laughs> it is what it is, people. Um, we have the traditional generation, we have the baby boomers, we have Generation X, Generation Y, which is now known as Millennials, and the new and upcoming generation that Anthony and I did not talk about is Alpha. Generation Alpha, they are actually toddlers now, so they're the up-and-coming generation. And these are the folks that exist in our day-to-day -day lives. And I just wanted to check in with our guests. Let's talk about your experience and how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as one of these generations? Let's just start the conversation. Let's talk about the generations. So I think for me, I generally identify with Generation Y, even though that's really controversial because I'm on the very end of the spectrum. Okay. Um, another generation that's kind of like this weird, like liminal generation sometimes labeled is called Generation Z that's supposed to be between Alpha and Generation Y because they're not quite toddlers, but they're also not quite like in the workforce or like working adults. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like identify with that space. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about... What have you heard and what are some of the myths that you've heard about the generation that you identify with? So I think one of the most pervasive myths about Generation Y or the millennials is this idea of being extremely narcissistic and self-serving mm -hmm. and having like absolute zero care for other people. A lot of people uh, think that, you know, we're a bunch of super leftist radical people who like don't want to do any work and just want like handouts um, because of people bringing up issues like you know student debt crises and other things that have affected our generation even though of course across generations there's no like you know political unity like we mm -hmm. have all types of different political orientations right, right, within right. the generation so yeah I think those are a few things that are commonly assigned to generation Y millennials just being really whiny and complaining. Um, <laughs> Please everything. tell me there's something good that is attributed to generation Y and millennials. You yeah. must have at least one good one or two good things. Oh definitely definitely. Okay. So I I'm a generation Y millennial stan let's clarify. Okay. Um, so I definitely ride or die for my generation because <laughs> I think that both the older sex of the generation and like the younger people like myself are really making strides toward making sure that places like Cornell and other work environments are a lot more inclusive of That's a lot right. of different people. Mm -hmm. I think that we're really outspoken about you know these moral wrongs that we've sometimes excused because that's just the way it is mm -hmm. um, and then instead challenge those things to make sure that we are creating spaces both in the workplace but in just also our interpersonal dialogues with each other that really make sure that we recognize the human dignity in every person and that's something I think is really important something that I proudly assign to Generation Y. Oh he just dropped some lyrics. Wow wow <laughs> very insightful. That was wonderful yes we're definitely going to piggyback on that in a second let's hear from Dave. <laughs> so I'm technically a baby boomer mm -hmm. although it's really interesting I sort of think of my parents as baby boomers and and not me. It's it's interesting. I mean, I struggle with this idea of labeling. Honestly, it's really hard for me to do. And especially when I hear Clayton talk about the negatives that people are assigned based on their generation. I think it's really a mistake to, um, for example, baby boomers, I think there's 76 million of us. For us to think that we have all the same characteristics, that we can't respond or be different in terms of the way we respond or think, I just think is actually kind of dangerous. And so for me, I think the challenge that we're facing in the workplace is to 
make these assignments and I have these ideas and create these biases around particular groups of people and how they're going to be when they walk in the door. I just met Clayton today. I have no idea who he is. But for me to think that he's going to be selfish and self-centered right. because of the generation he was born in would be a huge mistake, I right. think. That's sort of where I am with it. I mean, I've read, you know, what's assigned to particular generations. And one thing that I did notice as as we get down to generations that are younger, I think there are more negatives attached to those generations. And so I like to think that older generations raise younger generations mm -hmm. and we right. impart things to our children that, you know, we can't always say we're proud of. And so, and I'll just say that I'm, I'm one of those people who is in the baby boomer generation who wants to be in a workplace that has the kind of conversations you were talking about. Yeah. So I, I'm just working real hard not to make a lot of assumptions about who someone is based on what generation they're in. Could you talk maybe a little bit, and I know, Dane, you alluded to this around looking past kind of some of those assumptions, some of those biases that we have when it comes to working with generations and making assumptions about people, even just based off of their age, and then trying to put them in a generation, right? So how do you look beyond that in a particular work environment, right? If you're entering a new environment, you're assessing your team, who's on your team, you know, how do you try to not fall into that pitfall? That's a great question. I mean, I would say that, you know, really having to approach uh, this generational difference in the same way that you really should be approaching people in general. I mean, you just alluded to how people made assumptions about entire races of people for so many years. I think in a workplace, we need to really challenge ourselves not to do that on any level, age, race, ethnicity, orientation. I think we are in a time where we're seeing progress and also a resistance, I would say, to, to that. And so I think it's a unique thing that we have to push through. I think what happens with generations is people think it's okay to do all these classifications when in other instances around identity or inclusion, we would never say it was okay to do that right. or to assign everyone something based on their color or their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the dilemma we're in. Yeah, and I think people wanting to keep things the same way that they are. I think there's even some millennials who kind of want to keep that tradition too. So I think even just the assumption that, you know, it's older generations that want to keep things the same. No, there, there are people even very young, like in millennials who, who want to go back, you know, to the traditional mindset, to traditional mentality of keeping things in categories and labeling people as such. And so I think that to me also kind of conflicts obviously with the conversations we typically have around diversity and inclusion, but how do we work to combat that, especially on a global level? I think about that too. And I, what something I noticed with these generations is that a lot of them for baby boomers, for example, they focus on, you know, post-World War II. So it's very much focused kind of on this Western hemisphere notion of generations. But something that uh, was really interesting when we were talking about alphas, that's kind of the up and coming generation is that they're going to be a much more global generation, right? And so it's going to be, particularly when we're looking at certain populations that will grow and expand, it's going to be mostly China and India because they're going to be the most populous countries in the world. And so a lot of what some of the research suggests, right, is that a lot of what will be considered the norm for that generation will be based off of the standards and trends that are set in those countries as opposed to kind of the Western hemisphere countries. But I, I also just want to throw out there that a lot of the progress and things that have been made is attributed to the technology that is now available to us. It, it makes the world smaller and smaller. So to be able to have a label and wear it, I think it's a result of where we are as a world with our technology.
And that's really actually not so old. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. early 90s was when technology started to really take off. I mean, you know, I remember when I first started at my job 24 years ago, we mailed out brochures to talk about what we did. And we made client calls. Mm -hmm. I almost never communicate with a client over the phone now until we've gotten a lot of other stuff out of the way through email. So it's really interesting. It wasn't that long ago. And I do think technology is changing things very rapidly. And I think while it makes things smaller, it can also create distance. Absolutely. So technology and the workplace, right? So I think there's a lot of assumptions about technology, especially in the workplace, that older folks are more prone to not using technology or being more adept to using technology while younger folks are. But in my experience, I feel like it's a mixed bag, right? So even if younger folks know how to use the technology, they won't use it. But then older folks who maybe don't know how to use it are more curious to learn about how do you integrate it more into the workplace, right? So what has been your experience with the incorporation of technology in the workplace based off of different generations? In terms of expectations for a lot of younger people, I think that there's an expectation of a certain amount of literacy when it comes to your technological use. I think one example um, for email, I think about how does that affect the workplace. I think about email culture, right? About how like you're not supposed to email people after certain times, how you know you have to use certain labels or you need to like have a certain type of automatic reply if you're gonna be out of town or all these all these other things that you don't really know unless you've interacted in some of these professional spaces. But I also think about how that culture also shifts for people who are just like coming out of college or people who are just making some type of transition and I think that that assumption I don't know it can it can be a little bit harmful to people who aren't necessarily as technologically adept who are just have who happen to be young people because I think another thing that's a stereotype of young people is this idea of being you know super duper free and not really want to be a part of the world and sometimes people just kind of going off the grid whether that be to travel or just like we said technology can also make us lonely at times and so people can actually be kind of isolated as a young person if you're transitioning into the workplace a lot of times these cultural norms that are a little bit more established when it comes to like technology aren't always as well known because again you're new and I think that sometimes can work against you in some ways that just don't make you feel the most comfortable when you're at work. Do you find that you have to be clear about technology boundaries and what you do here at Cornell University? I think you do have to be clear, and I think there are double standards out there. I mean, work-life balance is something, as an institution, we say we prize, and I I think it's not always seen across the board. I think at certain levels, there is an expectation that you are available 24-7. So it's a delicate balance to try Mm -hmm. and figure it out. I, I happen to love my phone. I utilize it a lot. It makes my life incredibly easy in in so many ways. And yet I still have to be reminded sometimes by my daughters that I should put it down and talk to them. So, (laughs) I mean, that's that's going against what some people might expect for someone from my generation. And here's another thing. My mother is 80 and she does all of her banking online. And she and I communicate constantly via text. We send photos of things we want to show each other. We check in. She's as comfortable with it as I am. I will say that my daughter is probably more in tune with signing, getting off the grid for her email after work hours. I mean, it's something that she really is pretty solid about, and it took me a while to get there. 
Well, you know, as I mentioned, I've been at Cornell for three months now, and that's because I just graduated college back in May. And so I think for me, in terms of like the work-life balance and the technological aspect, I came from an environment that kind of demanded me to be always on because, you know, during regular work hours, you're usually doing your coursework, and then afterward, you're having to, you know, email people for your extracurriculars, and then also on this group project that you're working on. So the idea of always being on was a part of the culture that I was brought up in in college. And so transitioning away from that in my professional work life uh, has been a little bit tricky at times, right? right. Because it was, it's a completely different norm. And since my job is doing research, I am always on my computer. Like that, that is literally my job, using all different types of software, you know. And like you said, <laughs> learning some types of software and technology in college and then having to do different ones when I transitioned here to Cornell. So I think that this culture is really interesting in that it's not consistent. And I think that's what makes it difficult for a lot of people cross generations. Exactly. So therefore, that kind of shatters some of the labels that we are forced to wear. You know, it's like, no, this is not a generational thing. This is a technology thing. This is a 2020 issue, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and technology is what it is. And, you know, while it, it has its wonderful pros, it also has the cons that it's hard to sometimes separate. And it you want to separate, but you also want to stay connected. You know, I, my generation, I I have learned that Facebook is no longer young people. Facebook is for, you know, (laughs) people of my age. Um, And uh, and I actually took a hiatus away from Facebook and technology for a while. And I tell you, it's not that I feel like, oh, I am missing out on so much. But at the same time, I just don't have the information anymore. I went to a get together with friends and they were saying, oh my gosh, your business is is just growing in leaps and bounds and I see it on Facebook and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not on Facebook so I can't even contribute to this conversation. I have no idea what my friend's business is doing because I'm not on Facebook. So there I am, now I'm, I'm in between, you know, I'm like, I don't really want to spend my life on the computer, but when I don't spend time on it, these are the conversations that I cannot contribute to. So it's a very awkward place, and I don't think it's as generation-oriented as we want to believe sometimes. That's so interesting because I think about exclusion in that Mm -hmm. experience, right? And so I even think about even in, like, one-off conversations in the workplace, how even if people say, like, oh, I saw what you posted on Facebook or, oh, are you going to that event right? right, that was posted (laughs) on Facebook and how how even comments like that can kind of serve as, like, a a type of exclusion if people aren't on social media. And and Dana and I, before this recording, we were just talking about how even the the usage of social media has drastically changed, right? Mm So when Facebook was first kind of growing and I was part of that kind of group of people who like used it the young people who use Facebook right but you talk to young people now they say Facebook is for their parents it's for their their grandparents it's for the family Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. now they're on not, they're not even on Twitter anymore. They're on they're other platforms, on right? Like Snapchat or <laughs> yeah, um, Snapchat, Instagram. Instagram, right? And, and and they're so intimate with it. They shorten it. They're on IG or Insta, and I'm like, I don't even know what or that snap. is. Or Snap. snap. <laughs> yeah. So and right. yeah, and Twitter. Uh, I I think with Twitter and how it's now seen as kind of like this. PR tool, even how that shifted, like Twitter use, even right, right yeah, and yeah. and how people view Twitter now as like the platform to go to for like breaking news, anything major PR. Mm-hmm. You go to Twitter now, so just the, the ways in which even social media has shifted and which demographics of people are using it. I yeah. think I find I find it really interesting. Just for the record, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I do Instagram. I don't tweet really. I have an account, but it just it never sort of 
I don't know, it just didn't work for me. I'm not saying it won't eventually, but <laughs> right now it's it's not something that I, I do. And I, the reason I chose to go to Instagram is because I thought Facebook was, there was so much out there that you have to take in and people caught up in uh, projecting themselves in a particular way that may not always be real. And it creates this idea that everybody else's life is better than yours, oh <laughs> or it can. And I know that's yeah. a real thing. I've had conversations where people feel badly about their own experience because they see what people are projecting, and it seems so wonderful and beautiful. And I know some of these people's lives in a different way because I'm closer to them. And it's not just what you see right. on Facebook. It's There's a lot of struggles. All of this is so complex. I it mean, is. it is. And we have a lot more to navigate. I mean, I think to me, the things that all of us have in common across generations is learning how to manage all of this information mm -hmm. that is coming at us. And I don't think it's any easier for young people or someone my age to necessarily manage it. I mean, I have to be careful about how I take in the news and how much I, because it impacts my emotional capability throughout right. the day right. and, and communications. And so it, it can make me feel really to start the day with some news can set the tone for the day in a way that's just not productive for me. So I choose to use technology for that. I have certain news outlets. I see it on my phone. I get announcements. And then I choose how deeply I'm going to dive into that. Right. And I think that's such an important point, right, especially with technology, with social media, that I always remind myself, but then I remind other people, is that at the end of the day, you still have the control of like what you put out there around what you know, how often you access it, how often you use it. And like you said, it's all of that is very intergenerational. It really does come down to balance. It comes down to the personal boundaries that we set for ourselves and the balance that we want in our lives. You know, the boundaries that I set for me aren't necessarily going to work for everybody else. So I try to do things in a way that's manageable for me. Mm -hmm. You know, And it has nothing to do with my generation or anything like that. It's do I want to live life through this cyber world or do I want to go out and experience life from myself. Our conversations reminded me of another article that I read that was about social media and specifically about millennial generation and burnout culture mm -hmm. and how in establishing this balance between work life and our social lives, um, a lot of times the reason why so many people post so frequently or have to get, you know, in tune with the latest form, like I learned that TikTok was like a thing last week because oh, yeah. apparently that's something that even people younger than myself use and I have no idea what it is because I only signed up for Instagram last month. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, okay. I know. So again, defying the rules and the boundaries that we have. But basically, they were talking about this idea that a lot of younger people feel the need to have a personal brand that you always are reinforcing in some way. So I think about one platform we haven't talked about is LinkedIn and how LinkedIn is now one of these things where it's kind of expected as a part of your culture. Like a number of jobs I was applying to coming out of college, like, oh, send us your LinkedIn because you should have that updated. You should have that being posted so we know about your experience. And so this idea of branding yourself constantly mm -hmm. is something that our workplaces often reinforce because it be, again becomes an expectation, it becomes the norm. And you were touching on something a little bit earlier about this need to go back in and check and see how many, I mean, I think there's actually some studies out there that talk about addiction to social media and mm -hmm. how we, you know, we start needing to have that response, which gives us a dopamine rush or whatever <laughs> it is that's going to cause us to keep doing it. 
I've seen people do that too. And, and in situations, a friend of mine yesterday, I, I looked at her story and she said on her story, she says, I'm trying to take these people out to dinner. And she pans and she sees, and I can see two people at the table with her on their phones. <laughs> and, and then she, she gave a funny face. It's because that need to check, that need to be like, that need to not miss anything. It, it's really, it's a little scary. Just like we said earlier, it is incredibly isolating to be in a crowd or in a group and I'm on my phone. I'm a LinkedIn guru, so I love LinkedIn. I, I really do. But well, I you can, use it for research, too. You you use LinkedIn to find, like, keynote speakers for events and stuff well, like I that. Well, I mean, this is even before this world. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> like, I, I used I'm to... I'm trying to help them. I used to, <laughs> <laughs> I used to coach with my students around, like, LinkedIn. But I love it because, for me, it's about the content. Some of the content being related to kind of what's happening in the real world, but then within the professional context, it's not, you're not getting information from all sources. You're only getting information from sources that you find are relevant to you. So then it kind of narrows your scope of understanding of what's really happening because it's all of your, you know, your news feed. And LinkedIn has a similar kind of algorithm and Instagram as well. You know, mm-hmm. you know, whatever content you like will come to the top. Right. So yeah. then how does that really allow for conversations across difference along these social media platforms that then may impact conversations across difference in person? Well, I'll, I'll say I know that we've been like very critical of these platforms, and I think they do deserve some criticism because they've had some like really negative impacts. But uh, like you, I'm also a LinkedIn guru. I'm also, I would say, pretty much a Facebook guru. And there have been a number of times where I've had people be like, oh, Clayton, your life is just so great. Like, you know, like you're always doing this and getting this award and, you know, like you're just so polished. And in some ways, like for me, it's like I always joke with them. I'm like, you all know I only post the good things, right? right? right <laughs> like, exactly. you, you know, the whole point of this, yeah. especially LinkedIn, is for me to tell you what I'm successful. Mm-hmm. And I think for some reason, it actually can be helpful in terms of like, sometimes grounding myself and reminding me, oh, I've actually worked hard to do a lot of things and here are some of the results of that. Of Mm -hmm. course, I'm not trying to derive my self-worth from that, but I think that in this time where the job market for a lot of us is especially really slim and really difficult, sometimes it's good to go back and when you're preparing your materials, go back to your LinkedIn and see like, oh, here's something that I did that I completely forgot, but a really relevant experience to what I'm trying to do in the future. Mm -hmm. So I think that in a lot of ways, these, these platforms serve not as only a way to share, but also a way to document some of our experiences whether those be visual, whether those just be in terms of like things we've actually done. And I think that documentation piece can be really helpful for people. Well, we haven't talked about podcasts being part of technology. And I I think one of the things I love about podcasts is that it's conversation and it's really asks people to to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a skill that we always need to sort of keep on top of. I'm feeling that I have bonded with all of you through this podcast. (laughs) And we're all from different generations. And we're all different generations. Which I think brings up a really interesting point of kind of how we came to this point around technology and we focus on these core things and how it affects all of us. This is something I was really curious in wanting to explore this topic through the podcast because it's definitely been a request that a lot of people have been wanting. As we're kind of wrapping up this conversation, right, what do you recommend to folks, to staff here at Cornell, who still have this kind of interest in wanting to communicate across different generations? For me, I think it's it's really just a basic principle that applies across the board in so many ways, is that to meet someone where they are, to seek to understand them, 
and to really look beyond what we think they are based on all of this unconscious bias that each one of us carries around. And so I don't think it's really any different than the other things that we're asking each other to do around difference in the workplace. I know that there are a lot of people who are my age. I work completely differently than they do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me to, and then there are some younger people who I might feel more in sync with. That can happen. It's a, it's a reality. So for me, it's not so much just about recognizing a particular generation and having expectations about them. It's breaking that down, stepping away from that idea. Because I think I used the word dangerous earlier. I think it's dangerous when we do that to anybody based on a group that they're in. We miss out on finding out who they really are because we are saying you're like everybody else in that group. Mm -hmm. That's to me what I would say to people is that we just have to continue to engage with each other, hopefully in civil and responsible ways, to understand how we're different. Before I actually got here, I used some technology for my generation, and I actually posted on my Insta story, and I asked people who are generally my age about some feedback. Would you, what, what are some of your good and bad experiences in the workplace with being like a younger person? Um, and I got a, a bunch of responses, but one of the common things is just the idea of feeling more isolated than people already do in this period of transition for a lot of us, where a lot of us are already just trying to figure out who we are as people and what it means to be an adult and then to come into a workplace and not necessarily feel respected in the same type of ways can be really demeaning, you know, and it can affect your personal life in ways that aren't productive. So I think for me, in terms of my advice to Cornell, both, you know, as an institution at large, but also individual people, it's to remind ourselves that when it comes to young people, that we are an institution of higher education, right? And so, you know, some of the constituents that we directly work with on a daily basis and the people we support, a lot of times are a lot of young people who are trying to make the same transitions into the workplace that a lot of people like myself are. And I think that requires us to promote these ideas of like respect and also not make the assumptions of them being grossly incompetent and or so detached that they don't like you want to have any type of interaction. And so I think really, as you were saying, Dane, you know, meeting people where they are and again, recognizing their humanity, like there's always something to be found in common as evidenced by our conversation here today, you know, mm -hmm. having that be at the forefront of your mindset, I think makes for a more productive and more inclusive workplace. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. If you liked this episode, please leave us a comment and like us on SoundCloud to let people know about this podcast. Also, if you or a fellow colleague would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, please email us at ie-academy at cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Sharon Brown, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. A special shout out and thank you to Bert Odom Reed, our sound engineer from the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Thank you for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.